Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week is the first in a two-part series dedicated to stories of pain practice ownership, one as a solo practice and one as a partnership. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Shachi Patel, who is the founder of the Delmarva Pain and Spine Center. After reflecting on my discussion with Dr. Patel, I really think that this episode may be one of the most important conversations that I've had to provide real actionable insights for solo pain practice in the interventional pain community. I believe so strongly, this is no surprise, that physician autonomy is something we need to protect and cultivate and equipping doctors to run their own practices is really important for the future of healthcare and patient care and our society in general, not to mention physician well-being, which obviously is near and dear to my heart as well. Dr. Patel in today's episode gives us a play-by-play breakdown of how she started her own practice from scratch straight out of fellowship. And it's my sincere hope that there are others out there listening right now who perhaps have this same dream of practice ownership and who just need a little bit of guidance and a little bit of context and are maybe going to dive in and and take this journey themselves. So I hope that this episode is an encouragement and a resource. I'm also excited for next week when I talk to Dr. George Hanna about his experience in merging with a few partners to start an interventional pain practice in Manhattan and everything that went into that. So these next couple episodes, I think, are really special. As always, thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Shachi Patel. Uh, Dr. Patel is an anesthesia-trained interventional pain physician. She's a practice owner and entrepreneur. She collaborates in industry. She does a lot of things really well, and she started doing it very early, straight out of fellowship. So I'm really excited to be joined by her today to have her tell her story. And for any fellows out there who are wondering, is it possible for me to conclude fellowship and then go straight into solo practice? Here's a shining example of somebody who has done it. And we can hear from her today about how all that unfolded. So Dr. Patel, thank you for being here. Justin, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you today. Uh, So I'm curious, as you were proceeding through your medical education and residency, and then eventually thinking about a pain fellowship, you probably had certain ideas about the way you assumed your career would unfold, the different opportunities out there that you thought, you know, I like this model or that model. At what point did solo pain practice sort of come onto your radar? Well, um, yeah, it was, it, was an, it was an evolving journey. I will say that when I was finishing medical school and starting residency, I really thought I was going to stick around in academics. Um, and then, you know, residency is tough. Um, lots of call, especially anesthesia residency, lots of call, lots of long hours. Um, and you start sacrificing the things you care most about, which is your family and your time with your friends and your weekends. Um, and there was a shift through residency where I realized I, I didn't want to live that life for the rest of my life because I had other priorities um, that I valued just as much. And so I started to think about um, my career itself in anesthesia and in medicine and what did I what I wanted out of it. And, and ultimately, um, somewhere in the middle of residency, I, I was driven to realize I, I really enjoyed pain management. I liked that it was outpatient. I liked that it allowed me to do private practice. 
um, and have a, a more balanced lifestyle. And, and so somewhere in residency, that academic to private practice um, shift happened. Um, and then in fellowship is when I, uh, approaching fellowship and then in the beginning of fellowship is when I, I really uh, was more confident that I'd, I'd be able to do this right out of fellowship and do my own solo private practice. It's funny you talk about, uh, you know, priorities and autonomy, the joke. So I'm a business owner with my financial planning practice. And the joke in our little corner of the world is entrepreneurs are people who work 80 hours a week for themselves because they don't want to work 40 hours a week for someone else. And there's obviously still compromise in being with your family and your friends and having your weekends. And I'm sure that over the last few years, although you eventually do get up to a place of, you know, stability, there's a heavy lift on the front end. And none of those benefits of mature entrepreneurship are enjoyed at the outset. So talk a little bit about how your expectations and desire for those things was sort of met with the realities of having to learn on the fly. Yeah. So, you know, you, you mean like with, with me now as a solo provider, I mean, definitely the hours can be quite long sometimes because you're bringing a lot of work home, especially administrative work. Yeah. Um, but it's different because you get to do it out of the comfort of your own home and you get to do it after you've tucked your kids in this, you know, into bed and, mm -hmm. um, and it's more manageable, even though it's, it's what you said, you're, you're doing uh, 80 hours of work, but because you're doing it on your own schedule, it feels a lot less. So talk about the, uh, the people with whom you spoke as a fellow, and, you know, you're probably pitching this idea, probably at the beginning, it's like a little bit bashful, like, holy cow, you know, do you know anybody else who's done this? Is this even a good idea for me to be thinking or talking about? And who was it in those discussions that was an encouragement to you or helped to give you the framework in which you eventually sort of constructed this endeavor? So it was actually a couple of factors. So when I was um, in fellowship looking at jobs, the prospects in the area that I wanted to practice just weren't looking that great. Um, and at the same time, I was keeping engaged with my friends um, from residency um, who are older, two, three, uh, four years out, and seeing what their work experience um, post-fellowship was like. And I, I have to say, many were just not happy with their, their the first job that they took. Many switched to a second job, some to a third job. Hmm. Um, and, then, uh, and then life got complex because at that point, because as physicians, we've delayed having our families and our homes and all that stuff. Um, they, they have the um, extra uh, burden or stress or, or factors of, of thinking about children or their mortgage. Right. And so um, it just, it led them to kind of pursue jobs that they kind of felt like they were stuck in. And, and so Knowing those two things, um, I, I realized in fellowship that I really, what I really wanted was just the freedom to practice medicine the way I, I want, just mm -hmm. what I want to do, how mm -hmm. I want to do it. Um, and at that point, I, I was already living on a resident salary. I was fortunate enough to have a husband who um, is not medicine. So he um, had a stable career benefits and um, I, I didn't have much debt. So uh, I didn't have to give up a whole lot because at that time I also didn't have children. So it was easy to kind of dive in and say, if there's a time to take this risk, it would be now. 
Um, and then all the right people fell into place. So I was at Cornell for fellowship and, and um, prior to me, there's a graduate from Cornell. His name is Dr. Corey Hunter. He's lovely, amazing, but he, he had come and spoke to us uh, when I was a fellow about his journey. Um, and, and then he did it. He opened his own solo private practice in Manhattan and he's successful. And so I, I reached out to him and, and I had great um, fellowship directors, associate fellowship directors who were very helpful and encouraging. And all of that kind of fell into place um, based off uh, uh, my decision and wanting to pursue this. And so um, I, I, I then was more confident in my mm -hmm. ability to do it. So you mentioned a couple factors. So your husband was supportive and, you know, had an income that always helps. You had the mentorship and you had the the desire just from like a clinical standpoint to, to practice the way that you saw fit. Were there any other factors as you sort of did this self-assessment to see like, is this really right for me? Any other things you looked at, you thought, you know what, this is something that either disposes me to do this or is something I'm going to have to like compensate for and adjust in order to still be able to pursue this dream? Yeah, I think debt is a big one. I didn't have debt um, at the end of fellowship. And I, during fellowship itself, I worked, uh, you know, I was done with anesthesia training. So I actually worked as an anesthesia attending moonlighting while at the same time finishing fellowship as a uh, fellow in interventional pain. And so I was able to, to kind of um, eliminate my debt completely uh, and actually create a little nest of, of um, savings. And so um, that having financial confidence, right, and, and not feeling like uh, like having being locked down um, because of, uh, of the intense amount of debt from from all the training was was a huge factor in wanting to do this uh, now because again it goes back to like I was living a resident lifestyle I yeah. didn't have I was not used to like a big home big car fancy things and just you know I, I was used to uh, living in the, with this within the salary that I made as a resident and and my husband was too and yeah. And if there's any time to do it, it's it's why not do it then when you have no debt, no minimal risk. You, I don't have children. I need to think about yeah. um, um, at the time, and and so that that's what really prompted the leap. Because two years later, my situation would have been different. I could, I'm not getting any younger, so I, I knew I wanted to have kids, right? And yeah. and then once you have kids, you kind of want to have a safe home. You wanna yeah. you don't want to move from here to here and here to here. You don't want to change you know locations too often, and and uh, you want something that's stable. And so um, uh, having all of those factors uh, kind of in place for me towards the end of fellowship really enabled me to, to feel confident that I was making, it was a challenging decision and an undetermined decision, but it was, it was the right or good decision, uh, financially speaking at the time. Yeah. And it sounds like based on the, the, the conversations you had with some of your peers that you described that were two, three, four years out, like they probably didn't have that same flexibility just because of, you know, the personal and financial decisions that they made. And they found themselves having to say, well, you know, I got two kids, I got the mortgage, maybe I have car payments and I can't uh, do the thing that might give me a little more clinical freedom and personal autonomy. I have to basically pay the bills and obviously try to do that in as uh, agreeable of a job as they can find, but certainly having less flexibility. Exactly. I have a, a co-fellow who's kind of uh, venturing out and and um, wanting to pursue a uh, solo private practice now. But, you know, he's a perfect example. When, when I had discussions with him, it was these exact factors. At the time uh, when he was starting to think about it, I said, if you have debt, just stick around with your job one more year and pay off that debt, you know? Yeah. And 
and in that time I'm like, he, he's a male, but I'm like, just have the, the kids that you want to have this yeah. way. That's also not uh, something that you'll have to like take time off for or worry about. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then give, give your spouse the opportunity to have stability returning back to work because the whole kids picture is, is out of the way. And right. this, you have some comfort and liberty and freedom to uh, pursue this journey of starting a practice because you don't know how it's going to go, but at least you're not worried about the other things that really do matter, which is your family and your your spouse and your kids and all those things. And dad. Yeah, I'm interested because, you know, this is a, a common, it's a shared question by any resident or fellow out there. And something my wife and I have talked about is like, how do kids fit into the landscape of physician training? Do we do we just go for it in residency or wait until, you know, uh, attending hood? And it's funny because as you describe your own journey and the way that you're thinking about this, it's easy for me to imagine someone, another person who's asking them qu these questions of themselves could have said, oh my gosh, I can't start a practice because then I'll be like nine months into the practice and then I'll find out I'm pregnant. And then I'll be like, you know, a year and a half in and I'll have to take a month off or like, how am I going to deal with that? Or how is the business operations going to be sustained during a time of having a child but clearly that didn't dissuade you no i mean i definitely had that worry you had you had a great speaker uh previously dr uh, abraham mm -hmm. um and she you know um this was something that i had discussed with her when i was a fellow okay this was not even after i opened a practice this was pre when i was thinking about all these things and and she said she looked at me and she goes, that's not a worry at all. You just, you just get have a kid. She's like, on your first day you open, you're not even going to have a single patient. So what are you worried about getting pregnant for? And I'm like, well, actually, that's true. You know, like, um, so in the beginning, as you're building your patient volume, it's not like you're seeing, you know, 40, 50 patients a day yeah. uh, from the get go, you're, you're building that volume and that takes time. And, and, yeah. and so you have gaps. And so it's actually easier to have a child and actually have more time to uh, that you feel like you had um, with, with your child in the beginning when you're just starting off because you're still growing that practice. Now, that doesn't mean it's it's completely um, um, worryless and it was an easy process. For me, it wasn't. I, I My journey was more like what you said. Like, I think it was like six to, to eight months into my, my practice when I opened is when I was pregnant with my first um, uh, child, my, my first baby. And, and um, I, for me to have the security of having some time off, I had to find a locum's physician to kind of okay. uh, come in to give me that comfort. But you know, that's the thing. Like I never, in fellowship, I never thought about that. Like, oh, I just hire someone to replace me for a couple of months. But that's what I did. I, for yeah. me, it was important to be home for a couple of months. I wanted the maternity leave. So yeah. I hired a locum's physician to fill my role and continue to do what I do at the practice while I was at home. And you still oversee the administrative parts of of the business, but um, the day-to-day, -day, the, the execution of the clinical stuff, you could hire someone to do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when you explain it like that, it's like, well, we just, you know, hire someone to do the work while we're not there. That's the kind of thing that probably people don't even understand could be an option that you just sort of, you thought, you know what, I'll cross the bridge when I get there. And then you did, and then it worked. And then you came back and your practice didn't burn to the ground while you were gone. <laughs> Exactly. And the patients love it. They love it when you come back and they're just, and they're happy for you. Like, yeah. oh, show me pictures of the baby. How yeah. are you? Like, did you get some time off for you and your family? And, you know, it, it, I'm in a smaller community, but they, they just love and support you. And, and I didn't, um, the way it kind of fell into place and the way it happened, I just, it couldn't have been more um, conducive to what we as a society should do for women who have children. 
And I love how you built that for yourself on your own terms. I, I think it's, it's splendid. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm curious though, I wanna rewind a little bit. You, you know, it sounds like you had the mentorship. You did the self-assessment. You thought I'm wired to be able to do this from a personality standpoint. I've got a, you know, a stable home situation with my spouse. Uh, earning an income and we haven't yet like ramped up our lifestyle. We don't have kids. We don't have debt. Like the pieces are in place, but there's still the actual, you know, learning what you need to learn and then implementing hopefully what's going to be a well thought out strategy. So take me to that, that sort of the beginnings when you sit down with like a blank notepad and you're like starting to make a list of all the stuff or, or even just the people who are going to give you the lists. Cause we don't even know, you know, at the beginning, probably what that looks like. How did that process unfold for you? Well, in the beginning, um, I, I created a business plan. Really, it was just like thinking about location, 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 which for me was just where do I want to be? And it, to me, it came down to I want to practice where my family is because I want to yeah. be with my family. Um, and then trying to understand and ascertain what the market of pain management is like in that area. Um, understanding the payer mix, the, mm -hmm. um, the, the established reimbursements that were happening. And a lot of that um, is not stuff like I knew, right? I was a fellow. I'm still learning these things. And, yeah. and so that's where like you need good people um, on your team, but a healthcare consultant can, in, in a local area where you want to practice can really help give you some of that information and foresight. And, and so that's where I started. I gathered some of that information and then um, and then it kind of just fell into place. Like it was like, okay, this is manageable. This is doable. I think, I think I have the person, like you said, personality, but I do, I think I have the personality to really make this happen yeah. and execute this. And, and, um, uh, and then it just started that way, but a business plan. And then eventually when you start thinking about when you create the, the bigger picture, then you start thinking about the nitty gritty and then you, you will eventually create a pro forma statement mm -hmm. um, a down down the road. But in the in the very beginning, it was like, can I do this or can I not do this? And and some of that is just personality. Like, do you want to do this or do you not want? That's what my husband right. would say. You want to do this or do you not want to do this? If you want to do it, I support you, just do it. And yeah. and um and that's that's really what it came down to is wanting to do this. And you know, personality-wise, I think it's it's really important to like if you're outgoing and you you thrive with other people, which is something that I just naturally need to be able mm -hmm. to be happy. Um I think it goes a long way in, in this business, the medical business, because you're in the service of other people. So it sounds like there was an integral relationship there that you sort of mentioned and then kept on going with, which is a, a qualified healthcare consultant to help you do the, you know, the SWOT analysis, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats for your business, evaluate payer mix in a geographic locale, say like, who's the competition? How many patients can you reasonably expect to bring on in a certain period of time? Probably help with contracting and giving you a lot of the questions that you need to ask and then help you answer them. So how did you find, I mean, a consultant, we kind of joke, like that could mean literally anything and everyone could call themselves that. So how do you find someone who, you know, can solve the problems, which you found? Right. So, so, you know, I, I really need to figure out if I could be competitive in the market that I'm in. And, and I did um, use a consultant and the, the way I found her, her name is Tina is uh, through uh, Dr. Corey Hunter, who I, okay. who I mentioned before. So he, Again, um, he uh, came to talk to us when he was a, uh, when I was a fellow, um, as a fellowship talk, and he talked about, um, uh, you know, being a solo private practitioner, and um, 
and he also mentioned a consultant and I reached out to him and just said, who was the consultant you use? Can you give me some guidance? And, and then I reached out to her and I, I, it wasn't just her. I reached out to a few other consultants and, and interviewed them and figured out who was right for me, who wasn't, who I enjoyed working with and then settled with her. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I spoke with Tina the other day and uh, I'm hoping to have her potentially on a future podcast episode. We're going to put her her uh, information in the show notes for anybody who's interested. So anesthesiasuccess.com slash 55. You're going to find all the notes from our discussion with Dr. Patel, uh, including we'll put Tina's information there. So you hired a consultant and, and they helped you lay the groundwork. Um, talk about cost a little bit like and, and the financing element. Obviously, starting a medical practice costs a lot of money and most people don't have the bank account to be able to stroke the check for that. So how did you, you know, how did you think about financing? Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a really good question. Um, it's, it's not as complicated as, as people, um, think it is a consultant will definitely help you, but really you just need funding and you got to go to a bank, um, and, and talk to them about, um, like, a practice startup costs and getting a loan. And it's like shopping around. You're basically shopping around with different lenders to see who would give you the, the amount that you need at the lowest uh, interest costs for you. But before you go and do that with, with the banks, you got to make sure you have the stuff that we just previously mentioned. Like, yeah. are you in a good market? Do you have a good paramix? Are, are you going to offer a competitive edge or is it saturated already? Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly enough, if you pick a good location, um, the, the banks already have like lending divisions that are focused specifically on helping with, um, like medical practices. And so mm-hmm. they, they, they will put you in touch with someone that's done this already prior. Like, I'm not the first person to open a medical practice, you know, and they, they kind of, um, t- you take it from there and you apply. So the bank puts you in touch with another physician? No, sorry. It's someone within the bank itself that oh, they, I see that um, has done something like this, like who's, who's given out a loan for a medical practice. To Got kinda... it. So you mentioned that moment of sort of uh, realization when you're like, holy cow, like the bank is, is ready to wire, you know, a quarter million dollars or however much it is like into my checking account because they think that this is going to work. <laughs> so t- tell me about sort of that, how, how that experience unfolded. It's just so joyful. It's when you're, cause when you're thinking about this whole process and you're, your the uncertainty it can be overwhelming and um and then when you collect all this information you're kind of drowned in just oh can i still do it i don't know mm-hmm. it seems like the paramix is good it seems like the market is good it's not too saturated um uh, i think i can make it there and and all of these are just these are subjective opinions that you're kind of coming up with but when you sure. put it on paper and you submit it to the bank and the bank's like oh yeah, we think this is a great idea and we do think you have a market and we do think you'll be competitive in this market and and here's your bank loan to start this business you're like Oh, oh, like someone who uh, knows a lot more about finances than I do thinks that this is definitely successful. So why should I question it? Right. And so um, it it really just changes the trajectory of of how you go about thinking this will go because someone else now, someone being the bank, um, thinks it's going to to bode well. And so you're more confident that if someone's willing to give you money that um, they're not, they're also making sure that you're not making a, a bad decision or poor decisions. So. Right. Cause if you don't make it, then the bank loses too. So they have a vested interest in your success. 
Exactly. And so, and then if they're confident in giving it to you and, and the other part is if multiple banks want to give you money, that's even yeah. more reassuring that you're like, Oh, okay, maybe I am onto something, you know, and, yeah. and that, that, um, that uncertainty, uncertainty turns into confidence, which I think, um, was, was very pivotal for me when I was going through this, uh, during fellowship. Yeah, absolutely. So you've done the, you did the business plan. You've done the pro forma. You've talked to Tina. She's given you all the, your, your to-do list. Now you've got a bunch of money in a checking in a business checking account and you're ready to go start spending some of it in order to get the infrastructure that you need. So talk us through that process. Yeah. So, you know, you have to, there's a couple of things you got to do. You got to go through credentialing, which I think, again, it comes back to like having a good consultant. Um, uh, they will start working on all that paperwork because it's an over a burdening amount of paperwork that you have to, you have to, and your, your time is not worth doing all of that. There's people who are better at doing all of that. Right. And so um, a consultant can kind of help navigate that or even your biller, if you've used a biller uh, or have picked a biller can help kind of navigate that or, or, or do that for you. And then, um, and then you got to get ready to have all the people that you need in your team, which is typically attorneys. Like you need a corporate attorney to kind of establish the business and yeah. you need uh, you need some insight from an employment attorney and a healthcare attorney. Um, you'll need to pick that biller that I mentioned. Um, uh, having a management consultant um, is helpful. Having an accountant or a CPA is very helpful. Yeah. Um, and then just um, keeping open um, communication with with the banker um, to for the financing. But they do other lines of service too, like making sure like the credit card stuff is is figured out. And there's just so many little tidbits, but that that really the help the bank helps you figure out, um, put into place for day-to-day -day practice. And so all of those individuals, um, you need, um, yeah. to kind of really, um, start establishing yourself. And what's, what's fascinating is if you go into this thinking, oh, I'm a physician and I could do it all myself. That is not the right mentality. Like we yeah. know this much of what we need to know, but if right. you have, if you have the drive, but you have the right people um, who are um, advising you, it actually leads to, to more success. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the idea of building a team. I'm a big believer in that. I have my own team and my clients have their teams. But I'm curious, you needed a team of experts, many of whom you didn't even probably know that you needed a person in that slot, let alone know any people who could potentially fill that slot. So how did you go about sort of constructing your team? Well, when you when you um, want to start first establish the business, you need a corporate attorney. And the way you know, I got very fortunate. I use a larger um, a law group, and within that group, there's also like an employment attorney and a healthcare mm -hmm. attorney. And so when questions come up, they they don't say, "Oh, let me answer this." They'll say, "Oh, you need to talk to Joe." Um, down the hall here, you know, yeah. and help you figure this out. And then you realize when you're, when you're filling out one form to do one thing, like the 10 other things you need to figure out. And then, uh, but luckily the one person can kind of introduce you along the way. Yeah. Um, but that kind of fell into place for me because again, I used a larger uh, law group that had different types of attorneys within the practice. How did you learn how to strike a balance between delegation to experts and uh, doing things yourself that, that, you know, you, maybe were things that you could have done. I, I still struggle with that. I feel like I want to double check everybody's work all the time. Um, yeah. 
but it's just, you have to, uh, they advise you and then you realize like, oh, I don't know how to do this. And then they, they kind of instruct you or they'll help you figure things out. And then you, you can oversee it. So when you oversee it and you're paying for it, you're like, okay, they're doing their part and they're doing it right. Um, with time, it definitely gets easier in the beginning. I, it wasn't easy at all. And with time, I'm learning to just, there's certain things you just delegate off and, and cause you can't do everything. There's just not enough time in the day for one yep. person to do everything. And you get a sense of who you, um, can trust and who you're, you don't trust. And I, that's innate, that's your intuition. Yeah. And so, um, I, I think if you set up the right team, you'll get introduced to the right people yeah. and. And, and it really, it comes down to not so much wanting to do it all yourself, but like, is this worth paying for? And, right. and if the answer to that is yes, then you know that the service that they're going to provide is definitely one that you need that you're going to write that check for. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay. So we've gotten the loan, we've got the plan, we've got the team, we've still got a lot of money in the checking account and you've got to find space. You've got to start like getting the actual logistics in place. So take me through that process, the real estate and finding the office and getting outfitted. Oh, I think it's so important to have a good realtor on your team. So I, I again, I, I, I met with several. I started with one that I thought was going to, to lead to success. And then pretty quickly going through um, different locations and just getting to know his, his personality, I realized it was it's not going to work out. Um, so I, I said, I'm sorry, this is not going to work out. You know, thank you for your time. And then I found somebody else. And um, that person is the best realtor I ever had. They understood my goals. They understood where I was. Like they understood that I was doing something very unique and unchartered. Mm -hmm. Like I was finishing fellowship, starting a practice. And this was a huge deal for me because right it's a business venture, um, that not many people do. Um, he was, he's been in the community in which I practice for a long, long time. Um, he had a lot of connections, like he knew people from being in the community for a lot of time and, uh, was able to, to meet the needs I needed for my lease, um, without, without sacrificing. Like he understood what I wanted and was able to deliver that. And that included um, uh, working with my uh, landlord to get me like tenant improvement and things like that. Um, and he took the time to understand what kind of space I would need. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's just as simple as that. It's not, there are realtors who will show you and say, well, this space is available and let's meet at this address on this time, this space is available. And he was very unique in that he's like, well, let, what kind of space do you need? Explain pain management to me. What, what do you envision like space requirements looking like? And then he wow. went from that to showing me real estate that made sense for my needs. Um, and it was just a, a very fruitful, successful uh, process. And I'm very happy where I am. And I, you know, the only thing I would change is if I had way more money, I would I built the space myself, so I wouldn't have to rent it. But, um, but that those weren't the circumstances I was given. And so I'm sure. very happy with with where I am and, and where my office is and how it all turned out. Awesome. And that shows I think a lot of, uh, you know, it shows a lot about that real estate agent that he's empathetic. He's a listener. He wants to understand. I think that's probably, if you're going to succeed in any profession, definitely medicine, definitely financial planning. What I do, like you need to be good at asking questions and then just don't say anything and then ask why two or three times in the process. And 
you're going to learn a lot. <laughs> and the solution that you would have came in with at the outset is probably going to evolve pretty significantly by the time that you understand really what makes this person tick. So that sounds like this person was really on point for you. Yes, he was great. Um, so I think it's really important um, to, to have a good realtor. And it's okay to say no to a realtor and move yeah. on if, if you're not happy with what they're showing you or you feel like your time is wasted. Um, and then um, after you, you find the space, I think it's really important to um, uh, think about all the, the state and local requirements you'll have to build out that space. So like because we do pain management, there's fluoro, like x-ray yeah. uh, requirements, there's accreditation requirements, there's, uh, you need a good architect to kind of help facilitate all of that, right? Yeah. I'm not a physicist. What do I know? You know, so yeah. you need someone who who can educate you on on those state and local requirements, and then, um, and then the part where you said where it's like, how do you just let go and, and let them delegate? Well, being on top of the contractor, I would say, you know, if you're approaching this, just make sure you're constantly engaged with the contractor to say, make sure they're on time and they're doing the right thing and they're getting the right products and and just everything is falling. Yeah, make them be specific, make them give you a timeline and make sure they adhere to it and create some accountability. You'll probably get a much better result, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. On the timeline that you want, if you don't oversee it and you don't present yourself as someone who's like active in the process, then again, I was active in the process, so everything went by my timeline. But in my mind, I think it's because I was just meticulous about making sure they were on time. Absolutely. So I know one of the... Uh sort of black box type questions that would scare away other interventional pain practitioners from taking this step is, holy cow, how do I contract with payers? That just seems like this whole huge bureaucratic administrative mess that is designed specifically to make physicians miserable. How could I ever navigate something like that? It seems like an inaccessible hurdle. Uh, so talk through that process specifically and how it unfolded. Yeah, so, you know, credentialing and contracting, like when I was doing the market research, it, the first thing you want to find out is if the market's saturated or not. If it's a saturated market, insurers are going to come back and say, we already have all the doctors we need in network, right? And they're not going to easily get you in a network. Um, luckily for me, um, I, I picked a market that wasn't too saturated. And then the credentialing process, it just takes time. It's paperwork. It's tons and tons of paperwork, resubmitting applications, resubmitting signatures. Um, so for, for me, I was fortunate that, that um, the healthcare consultant kind of took care of a lot of that paperwork. And then um, saw through it the way I mentioned with the contractor just staying in touch with the insurance companies to see the status of the application um, if it's if it's being processed what the next step is if they're missing something um, and, and kind of um, reconnecting and getting those documents off and um, and then it, it takes time some some came in quick you know a couple months to six months and others took a long time like a year yeah wow. and I have no control over that process you know but but you have to be okay with that. You can't control everything. So you have to just, um, you kind of just have to let it play out the way, way you need. And it's okay. You, when you're seeing patients, I mean, patients have in network benefits and out of network benefits. If yeah. they, if they have cost prohibitive out of network benefits, if I was not in network with their insurance company, you just have to disclose that to them and let them understand that. And some people will still choose to see you because they want you specifically and others will say no 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 i need to find someone who's in network and that's okay 
Yeah. And I think that was, as, a, as we had our previous conversation, this was a revelation for me where I thought, you know what, that makes a lot of sense is when you first start, once you get your space outfitted and the architects are done and you've got all the stuff in order to uh, practice that you need, people come in and you're just going to bill them out of network under their existing insurance. And the, the payer uh, credentialing doesn't necessarily need to hold anything up. You just, you just start practicing. And as long as you're disclosing the cost to the patients, there's no reason that that shouldn't work while you're waiting for all the three, six, 12 months for the paperwork to go through. Right, exactly. And, and as long as, you know, the thing is patients love honesty. Like they love yeah. people that um, provide full disclosure. So if you have someone on your team who's just looking at uh, a patient's um, uh, benefits before they even come in, like when they're calling to make that appointment and you disclose to them the current situation, if I'm out of network um, and they have they don't have out of network benefits or something, like just tell them and they'll yeah. they'll appreciate that. And, and what's funny is uh, like I could, I still remember this one distinct case of a, of a woman who I, we had this discussion with and she chose to go somewhere else. And then when I was finally in network, she came, she came to me. Yeah. Just kind of worked itself out. So, and I, I could say that now, cause it's been three years later, but when it happened then, it, of course it hurts. You're like, oh, I wish I was in network so I could see this patient. Right. Yeah. But, um, but it just kind of works out. Like life is just continuous and, yeah. and patients will come back. Yeah. If yeah. you're a good provider, they'll come. Talk a little bit about um, how you're thinking about sort of constructing clinical workflows and how that interacts with staff. And how did you decide like something as simple as like how many you know exam rooms do we have? What cabinets go where with what things to make sure that everything is efficient? And then who do we need to hire to help? You know, maybe there's somebody at the front desk or a medical assistant and others. How did you just do the very nuts and bolts like building workflows and then having people hiring people to participate in them? Well, you know, it kind of just, I'll tell you the, the, the real estate or the, the lease or the location you pick kind of navigates all of that. So you only have a certain amount of square footage once you decide like, this is, this is the lease that works for me. This is what's yeah. affordable with my loan. This is, this is where I'm going to be. Right. And then, and then you only have a certain amount of square footage. So you work with your architect to kind of say how, what's the best way to divvy up these spaces. So mm -hmm. Everyone needs a waiting room. Everyone needs a reception area. Everyone needs an office area where like, physician or other providers can work. Um, I needed a procedure room and I needed clinic space. So uh, the architect then can kind of structurally look at the space and say, you're allowed to build a procedure room here and off like clinic rooms here. And you need this area for like an ADA compatible bathroom and this one for an employee, you know, all of that kind of just falls into place and they give you a good idea of how to use your space and um, best utilize it with different different markups, but they'll, they'll be able to kind of show you that. So um, it really depends on, on the real estate you got. So meaning like um, if I'm practicing in Manhattan, the, the footprint of my office, the square footage would be so much different than where I am in Delaware. Right. Sure. So, so all of that has to be, be taken into account. But I did, um, I did start uh, with three, as far as staff goes, I started with three staff. Um, really the, the goal with the three staff was one person who was designated front office doing like phone stuff, insurance stuff, prior authorization stuff, and then um, a back office staff that was primarily a medical assistant who, who did clinic um, work. And, um, and then a, a float person who kind of jumped to one or the other, depending on what I needed. And it gave me the safety that if one person was sick or called out, I, at least I had the minimum of the two that I needed. Um, and then it, it grew from there. Got it. So talk about how you uh, 
raised the profile of your shiny new practice whenever you unlock the door for the first time at 9 a.m. on a Monday, the first day that you're you know, doing what you're doing. And, and obviously there's, there's no one there to meet you. So you're now a, a marketer. <laughs> you're a business development person, what, what we would call in the finance world. You're, you need to make people know that you're there and make doctors know that you're there and start to build patient volume. So talk about that process. You have to be outgoing and 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 be be able to talk to anybody and everybody. Um, when I first open, you're right. Like it's not like I had a million patients. So when you first open, you have to present yourself to the community. Go out to the providers and say, "Hey, here's who I am, and this is where my practice is, and this is what I do." Uh, and part of that is providing some marketing material, but a large part of that is just introducing yourself. And I can't tell you, like in the beginning when I started to do this, it's easy for me because I'm, I'm relatively outgoing, but um, the, the, some, a majority of the offices loved it. They loved that. They're like, oh, so you're the physician. And I'm like, yeah. And like, and you're marketing for yourself. Like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing, you know? And, and because you're a physician, they'll actually let you in the back and introduce you to the, the other providers in that office. And then they get to meet you face to face and yeah. um, get to, get to know who you are and, and they'll take your paperwork or your, you know, your, your, your marketing material. And, and you hope that that will lead to referrals and, and some did and some didn't. Um, but I will tell you, it was just, it was the, the, of that phase of this practice, um, it was very well received. And, and now on the other side, like in my own practice, when I look at um, the, the um, people who come to market, I realize I like, there's only one other doctor I know in this community who self markets and, and he and I are good friends now, but um, not many people do that. So it's a very unique position you put yourself in because you're saying, Hey, here I am. Look at me. Um, I'd love to help you help your patients. And, and I think it's well received. Um, now I'm, I'm, you know, several years in and um, it, the, the patients refer their own patients. It's just, it, it's kind I don't have to do that as much anymore. Yeah. I mean, obviously it was an adjustment. They don't teach this in med school. They don't teach this in residency, like the fine art of knocking on physicians front doors and, and introducing yourself. So how did you, did you find any like methods or any, how did you, how did you succeed? <laughs> I mean, again, there were, there were definitely like offices that were well receptive and there were others that were like, okay, cool. I got the information. Thanks. Have a great day. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess I, 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 don't re I just, it was just natural to me. And I, I think yeah. it's because when growing up, it's kind of like what Nirmala um, said to you in her podcast, like she had an upbringing where her dad kind of created this path for her. And mm -hmm. I had an upbringing where my parents did that. Like I, my parents were also entrepreneurs. They had gas stations, hotels, things like that. And so I learned customer service at a very young age and I had to continue it through, you know, my years at home. Um, and then talking to people, no matter what walks of life they're from, you just engaging them, listening to them, uh, connecting with them is just something I've learned through the years. And so uh, knocking on, uh, you know, an office's door and, and going up to the window and saying to the receptionist, hey, I'm Dr. Patel. It's very nice to meet you. I open my own pain practice. It's blah, 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 blah. Um, I'd love to tell Dr. So-and-so about it um, and, and get referrals for patients if, if I can help them. And, and uh, I'm, again, I'm generally in a very nice community and a majority of people were, well, thank you for visiting us today. And let me mm -hmm. introduce, I think the doctor actually has a few minutes to talk to you and, and they'd bring me back and I'd get to chat. And then that was it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, so we've we've mentioned this episode a couple times now. So uh, anesthesiasuccess.com slash 48 was with uh, Dr. Normal Abraham, and she has a lot of great experience in all these similar types of things. We talked about doing this in the HOPD context in our discussion, uh, but she, I know, has been an instrumental mentor uh, for many in the pain community, and I know that you shared that she has, has had a, a big impact on your practice. I want to sort of start to bring it home now. I know that in the last year or two, in addition to obviously your uh, your clinical practice, you've done some industry collaboration that has sort of just popped up, I think, as you're in the midst of doing what you're doing at the beginning, knocking on doors and then starting to treat more and more patients who are then referring you to their all, all their friends. Talk a little bit about the genesis of that and, and what it's like with regards to your experience in industry collaboration. Dr. Jessica Jameson actually said this where, you know, I, I was at NANS this year and she had made this comment where she was at the podium and she said, you know, well, I open my own practice. I have all these bills to pay. Um, I'm still trying to grow the practice. And, and here's the industry who's going to um, pay me to talk to me about this or that or whatever. Right. And it's just like, why I have, I have kids at home and I got a mortgage to pay. So why not engage them? And I think, yeah. I think that's like a huge factor. I think in the beginning, it's it's easy to collaborate with industry because they are helping you um, in a way that helps grow your practice, but also um, in a financial way. And so I think it's it's kind of in the private practice realm, it's something that kind of falls into place. But I will say, um, my I think my collaboration with industry really started from um, my uh, networking with a lot of uh, private practice physicians, like people who have kind of mentored me, advised me, and then who I look up to for advice or clinical help. And, you know, people like Tim Deere, Jessica Jameson, Neil Mehta, Corey Hunter, Nirmala, uh, Abraham, like all these um, physicians you meet over time and you meet them at conferences and you meet them at other conferences. And, and then in between you run ideas and, and clinical questions and, and tough situations by them and you build a rapport and they get to know you, you get to know them. And then with time, if someone that they work with in industry says, hey, who's a physician that we should work with? I think I think your name comes up. And I think that's how all of this kind of comes into play. Meaning I didn't specifically seek my collaboration with industry. It, it, it found me, but I think it found me just by the natural progression of uh, what it means to be an entrepreneur a private practice physician and um, like a business person who networks. Yeah. Well, you have a very diverse skill set, and I think some of those skills were sort of just dormant for a while. Uh, but but it's clear that uh, you have a lot of just disparate types of skills that aren't inherent to all physicians, and it's enabled you to prosper in ways that are <laughs> not common. Which is really it's really fun to to be able to hear about and and to see. I'm curious, you know, for, for our listeners out there, are there any resources or any things that other things that we haven't mentioned already that were, you would say, like, if you're thinking about doing this, definitely read this or look at this or talk to this person to be able to just do part of the due diligence for this process? Well, you know, in, in fellowship, I definitely read a book called Essentials of Practice Management. And it was great because it really explained budgeting, the revenue cycle, capital investment, how to how you monitor the financial performance of your practice. So um, all so reading that was really a good foundation of like where I was going from the business aspect of this practice. And so I, I highly recommend that book. Um, and then since then, um, I found that like the, the biggest source of information is your your 
your networking or your relationship or your collaboration with other uh, practitioners like yourself, so private practice practitioners. And that happens in many forms, but I think the biggest thing is like go to meetings and and um, present yourself and let people know you're, you're who you are and you're, you're interested. And, and with time, you develop a network of um, like-minded physicians who could help you through things. So like COVID-19, no one really saw that coming, right? Yeah. And like, how do you as a business or an entity survive this wave of, of uh, changes in your business? And, and I think that the biggest um, asset to me in my practice was just my ability to reach out to all of these people that I mentioned to you uh, in this podcast and, and many, many more who said, hey, you know, this is what I'm doing or this is what I thought about or this is um, you know, this apply for this or you know, this, that, and the other, and kind of the, the phases of, of going through this pandemic, um, it, it made it more, it didn't make it a me problem. It kind of made it a, um, a widespread problem that other businesses were also suffering and it allowed me to collaborate to find solutions. So, so I think having an, a network of people that you just meet over time and you stay in touch with is really important. Um, and then a consultant is always, always, always helpful because they um, have done this more than you have and so they have answers to questions that you're thinking that they're just like oh this is this this is what you do for this and so i think a consultant like tina um is great to have um uh along your side yeah not only the answers to the questions but the questions themselves which can be more important in many cases (laughs) exactly right exactly cool so i want to wrap it up here and thank you again for your time dr patel um in in just closing with a, a story of a reflection of yours. You know, this is, I, I, I love what you've built and I love hearing the story and the, the entrepreneurship and the, you know, the clinical side of things and the marketing and the finance and business and it merges all together and you have either picked up skills that you didn't have or you've learned to just delegate to experts and, and you've been able to get a pain practice off the ground in a just a, a pretty short amount of time that's just a, a very uh, impressive story. So as you think about what you've accomplished, the patients that you've helped, um, tell me just a, a short story or reflection on what is it like looking back, seeing, you know, thinking about the, the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed fellow a few years ago who had this dream and now looking back and seeing that you have achieved practice stability and you are living a life that is on your terms. Uh, a story that sort of just brings all that home. Well, you know, that's that's a tough question. I have to say I don't have I have multiple stories of of patient interactions that make me think this is worth it. But I'll tell you that the journey with uh, entrepreneurship and having your own business is just there's like there's this graph that's around and it's on online uh, where it's like just waves of like you feel ecstatic and then you're yep. like why did I do this and then you're like okay I think I can do this or oh, I definitely can do this or wait why did I do this again and it's just waves of ups and downs and yeah. and I feel like that's very true like that mm-hmm. graph or that pictorial is very realistic to what it's like to to run your own business and Um, I I feel like what grounds me to wanting to do this and continue to do this is just this little bits of patient story. So I have patients who I've large, and I didn't even know that I largely impacted them until they send like a gift basket or especially to me, the cards when they send a handwritten note and I've kept every card that I've received since the first day of opening and any time where I feel overwhelmed or I'm just like, what what did I get myself into? Like, am I making the right decision here? Um, I sit down and I look at either the memorabilia I've been sent or like the, especially 
the cards um, and and the stories and the thank yous and how I, as one person, was able to impact their life in such a positive way. And it makes me very, um, it makes me want to do this and continue this. And so whenever I'm having those phases, I kind of take those out and I read through them and I'm like, okay, I'm, this is, we're okay. We're, I'm doing the right thing. This is totally worth it. The journey is hard. Um, and you just got to keep pushing. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that story and thank you for joining us today on the Anastasia Success Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I wish you guys all the best. Thanks. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.